Welcome to the Phase World Podcast. Engaging conversations that cross the boundaries between business, art, and the digital world. is all about uncovering the patterns of language that everyone knows if you speak a human language. You have all this implicit knowledge of how structure in your language works at every level of that structure. And for the most part, you were not explicitly taught any of this. So there was this puzzle-solving aspect of it, which was really pleasing, but also this mind-blowing aspect of it of, oh my gosh, I had no idea all of this was happening under the hood. I just, you know, open my mouth and talk and it happens. But there's so much more to it than that. What linguistics has helped me do is reflect on my own reactions to any sort of social phenomena. Because I'm a human, I have reactions to things. Sometimes they're negative, but I always sort of step back and think, huh, well, is there anything really to that? So is the thing that I think is happening actually happening? And the sort of mind reading I'm doing <laughs> to come up with a reason for why people are doing this, is that really correct? And of course, when you reflect on these things a little bit, you think, okay, well, maybe my first reaction was not correct. We all contain multitudes, right? We're all kind of constructing different sort of identities in different contexts, and we shift the way we speak depending on who we are in a particular context, right? But if you can frame it in a way of like, no, you have different ways of being in different contexts. Uh, you can speak one way with your family and that's perfectly fine. And you can speak another way in a job interview and that's perfectly fine. And it's all perfectly fine. The more that we can move towards that mindset, the more people will feel good about their language skills and their place in the world, I think. Hello, my friends. This is your host, Fei Wu, for the Face World Podcast. Welcome to another new episode. And today I am joined by Jennifer Nice. Jennifer is a researcher and teacher for the Department of Linguistics at Georgetown University. How did I find her? I didn't. Face World Podcast audio producer and engineer Herman did and referred her to me. We had a blast. I had always been interested in linguistics and semiotics. On this episode, Jennifer and I talked about accent variation, dialect acquisition, phonetics, sociolinguistics, general linguistics, and much more. In addition, as an ESL person myself, which is English as a second language, I have had my share of studying and experiencing many aspects of linguistics. How are accents formed? What are the likelihood of someone adapting an accent that isn't native to him or her? Is there an optimal age to learn a new language? And can someone learn a new language later in life? How does learning a new language trigger brain development or other benefits? Why do languages come more easily for some people than others? Hopefully, by the end of this podcast, you will want to pick up a new language on your own and really enjoy the process, and maybe impress your friends and family too. Now, Face World Podcast is all about people who lead interesting lives just under the radar. If you enjoyed this episode, please check out a few others on your mobile app or directly from our website at faceworld.com, F-E-I-S-W-O-R-L-D. Our hamburger menu has a categories option for you to navigate a variety of topics from art and design to entrepreneurship to social services to performing arts, even marketing and agency lives. So thank you for choosing Phase World. But for now, without further ado, please welcome Jennifer Nice to the Phase World podcast. excited because I happened to have this great opportunity. You know, when I was 12 or 13, I learned English, but the opportunity to come to the United States and really be able to practice 
the language, and I was uh, 17 at the time. And language has been, or linguistics, uh, has been a subject that really fascinated me for a long time, but I did not study. And there's so many questions lingering in the back of my head. I'm just excited to have you on. So what is your background? Where is it? What is the origin of that name, if I have to guess? Um, well, it's a Polish name. And um, if you're being properly Polish about it, you'd say something more like niche. Um, but for whatever reason, my family says niece. But I am definitely... American. Um, I was born here. My parents were born here. My grandparents were born here. And I'm originally from Cranford, New Jersey, which is um, kind of a suburb of New York City in Union County, just less than an hour outside New York City, a town of about 20, 22,000 people. Um, so I grew up in suburban New Jersey and eventually went to college in New Hampshire at Dartmouth College, which is when I discovered linguistics and how wonderful it was. Uh, after I finished at Dartmouth, I went to graduate school in linguistics at New York University. Um, so tell me a bit more about the discovery of the magic of linguistics while you were at Dartmouth. What happened and what did you study at the time? Well, what happened was I took a linguistics 101 sort of class my freshman fall. Um, so actually in high school, I had been a real mathlete. So I was on the math team and took all you know the AP calculus courses and all that. So when I started my freshman fall, of course, I placed into and enrolled in this advanced placement honors math class, which was fine. But within a, a few minutes of that class, I realized, you know, I, I enjoyed math, but I wasn't really going to go further in this field. And I certainly didn't fit in with the people who were in that class at the time. So I was looking around for a replacement class and ideally one that fulfill the quantitative and deductive sciences breadth requirements. And essentially, of course, that means math, but it also meant linguistics. And I thought, okay, well, I never even really heard of linguistics. I don't know what that means, but if, it, if it's sort of like a mathy view on language, then I'm all for it. So I enrolled in the class and essentially just had my mind blown for a whole semester. So linguistics is all about uncovering the patterns of language that everyone knows if you speak a human language or multiple human languages. So you have all this implicit knowledge of how structure in your language works at every level of that structure. So not only do you know how to pronounce the sounds of your language, but you know um, how many sounds your language uses in the first place. You know the complex rules for how they can be put together into words, what's allowed and what's not allowed. You know these complex set of rules for putting together uh, little bits of words, roots and prefixes and suffixes to make bigger words. You know how to put words together to make sentences. You know how to put sentences together to make larger stretches of discourse course. And for the most part, you were not explicitly taught any of this. So there's, of course, the grammar that everyone takes in elementary school, where you learn various aspects of prescriptively correct standard English, but no one actually sat you down when you were a toddler and said, okay, remember the the has to go before a noun, you know, and so on. And you can start a word with bl, like a word like blick, but you can't start a word in English with bn, so no bnick, right? These are just things that you learned by osmosis and internalized, and you employ them every time you speak. So linguists are interested in, well, what does that knowledge look like in the first place? How do we internalize those rules? What are the underlying representations um, and rules of grammar that we use to structure our language? How did we come to learn that? Um, how can that knowledge change over the lifespan? And so on. So it was in the course of learning about this underlying structure of language, doing problem sets where our professor would hand us a list of sentences in some other language with their with their glosses uh, and say, okay, figure out what is the syntax of this language. So there was this puzzle-solving aspect of it, which was really pleasing, but also this mind-blowing aspect of it of, oh my gosh, I had no idea all of this was happening under the hood. I just, you know, open my mouth and talk and it happens, but there's so much more to it than that. Wow. So it's interesting you said when you dissect a language and a lot of people ask me, what is it like for a small child, a young child to learn a language such as Chinese? And I realized that my answer has been, look, if you don't have an option, you have to learn it. Not that, you know, it was necessarily enjoyable. I remember as a child that it really wasn't. 
because unlike English, where I can, I feel like I can spell it, I can make a sound of it. The Chinese characters, unfortunately, not, are not always structured with hints, and、mm-hmm. sometimes it's I find them to be tricky because it reads as if it's supposed to sound a certain way, but actually has nothing to do with the character you're looking at.、Um, so it was interesting that when you talked about learning a language, you talked about learning the writing system of the language and contrasting the sort of character-based system of Chinese with the more alphabetic system of, say, English. And linguists often make a distinction between written language and spoken language, where written language is really sort of secondary and, in a sense, not as natural as spoken language. So. Every human, if they grow up in normal circumstances、um, and don't have any sort of neural problems, right? They will learn a human language,、um, and actually, most of the world learns more than one language as a child. Whereas written language, that's not something that everybody has, right? So not everybody's literate. Of course, you know, babies don't come out literate, or toddlers even, as toddlers that can produce sentences can't necessarily write them. And and of course, unfortunately, there are adults who are not literate, and there are. Adults who have trouble with literacy, right, because of things like dyslexia. So there's something about that mapping between orthography and sound, which is an additional process,、um, which we have more recently added onto the spoken language. But spoken language is really the thing that linguists focus on as the real object of study. And of course, other linguists focus on how writing systems work as well. It's sort of like a, a little sub area. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to spoken language, I never understood or never really questioned this. When at the beginning of time, the origin of languages, how were these sounds and these rules even determined? I mean, what were some of these guidelines? How did this happen? Well, that's a that's a great question, and it's still sort of a mystery. And there's a lot of debate as to. How language evolved and where it came from, and even differing theories as to what language is sort of originally for. So there are some linguists who think that well, obviously language is chiefly about communication. So it evolved out of maybe some a system of gestures or something that humans originally used、um, in a kind of simplistic way, and then that evolved into a more complex linguistic structure. Others believe that the basics of linguistic structure actually originated more to structure thought. So it was more like we developed certain mental apparatus for thinking about like causality and relationships between ideas, and then that became kind of like the skeleton of spoken language. You know, it's hard to know. Unfortunately, brains, which is where language resides, they don't leave fossils, right? They're mushy. Yeah, <laughs> they, they just go away.、Um, so we can't like dig up old brains and determine what the neural structure was and what might have、um, yeah. been doing what.、Uh, so it's kind of a mystery. And there's there are linguists with very strong opinions. Opinions on how it must have been. What are some of the areas about linguistics that interest you personally the most? You know, it's interesting you mentioned different linguists will focus on different areas, which、mm-hmm. I find very similar in my industry as well. Just because、mm-hmm. people fundamentally are different, and so what do you like the most? Sure. Well, the thing that interested me about linguistics, in addition to the solving the puzzles and figuring out the structures, was the fact that it sort of allows you to flex lots of different muscles. So, linguistics, on the one hand, is very analytical and involves looking at data and figuring out patterns from that data and developing theories to account for them. But on the other hand, it's social. Like language is something we use between people. It is a social phenomena, and so it、uh, interfaces with the social world and society. I particularly am interested in the fields of phonetics and phonology, which deal with sounds of language. So phonetics specifically has to do with、uh, the physical sort of realization of sounds. So how you articulate sounds,、um, how they are perceived by the ear, what their acoustic. Print looks like、um, so. How you can analyze them acoustically? Phonology deals more with the abstract knowledge you have about the sounds of your language. So how you cut up the very continuous acoustic signal into discrete units that you can use to build words out of. And I like phonetics and phonology because. Looking at accent variation sits at the nexus of this social world, the mental world, but also the physical. Right. So when you utter some Utterance in your language, right? You have some sort of propositional content that gets transduced in some way into this series of tongue and mouth motions, and that produces this sound wave, which hits your ear or the ear of whoever's listening, and then gets decoded back into that 
set of sounds and that that message. But as I do that, I'm not just conveying a propositional propositional content, right? I'm also going to convey something about my social reality or how I construe the social situation. So you'll be able to tell things about my gender, my age, possibly my regional background, whether I'm like you or not, uh, whether I'm feeling sick or maybe a little tired or energetic that day, right? So there's all this additional stuff that gets conveyed along with that message. And of course, it is affected by my physical state. So if I'm talking to you and I'm holding a paintbrush in my mouth because I'm, I'm painting, right? That's going to affect not only how I produce those words, but the signal that comes out of that. Um, but so phonetics and phonology really sits at this place where you have to understand the physical and how it interacts with the mental and also how it functions in the social world. Yeah, accents are, it's only one of many things that you articulated just now. But to me, it's really interesting, for one, how I've been treated differently as a mm-hmm. result of the way that I speak. Mm-hmm. One example I can think of immediately is looking at my peers who are, many of them are much smarter, and they worked on their language skills, English skills, much harder. I remember kids, you know, facing the mirror and practicing all day long, but still they couldn't get rid of their original accent. So I remember either applying to college or applying to jobs. I had this huge advantage. In fact, sometimes it can be a curse of people not knowing that I might need a work visa, for example, to actually work in this country. And, Mm -hmm. you know, HR would assume, obviously, I'm American. So what are your thoughts on that, sort of the the social phenomenon of accents? Oh my gosh, so many thoughts. Well, I mean, I could speak to what we call L2 accents. So accents in a a language which is not your native language. And it can be very hard to shake them. So depending on when you acquired your second language, you may have more or less difficulty kind of overcoming those very first motor patterns that you internalized in learning your first language. So the accent, right, that you have is just how you pronounce all the sounds of your language. So an important point to make here is that everyone has an accent, not just people who to use sound different, right? But everyone has an accent because we all have a way of pronouncing the words of our language. And that is determined by, you know, listening as a child and figuring out well, what are the particular motions. Lots of linguists believe that this is the purpose of babbling. So babbling is kind of how babies experiment and figure out what articulations correspond to what kind of sound so they can match what's in their environment. And that gets solidified pretty early. And that's not to say that people can't lose their accent or learn new motor patterns, but it becomes increasingly difficult as you get older. So there's probably an issue of how early you learn the language. I assume L1, does L1 means like level one, your English is your first language. First language, yeah. First language. I noticed the interesting aspects of accents among English speakers. Mm -hmm. So living, I live in Boston, as you know, I Mm -hmm. am automatically exposed to a lot of, um, you know, researchers and PhDs uh, who travel all the way from, you know, European countries and, you know, from England to study here. And I notice how people, uh, generally speaking, uh, favor the British accent for English speakers. What I find fascinating is that that's sort of the internal consistency among people with the same accent, even though from outside of that circle, it may appear to be odd or not accepted or understood, but internally, they understand each other. So how do we process that? How should we understand that a little bit better? Sure. Well, so one thing to keep in mind is that if you try to kind of strip away the social world for a minute and just consider languages or dialects as linguistic systems, as communication systems, and it's it's accepted as sort of axiomatic by linguists, um, but also based on actually looking at different languages and dialects and how they operate, Um, All human dialects are equally good at being languages. Whether you're looking at the most standard of British Englishes or the most vernacular 
urban varieties. When you actually look at the patterns in the language, they're all equally good at communicating what they need to communicate. They're all um, highly systematic, right? So sometimes people speak derisively of certain accents or dialects as being without grammar. Well, that's not true. <laughs> There's certainly a grammar. There are things that you can and can't do in that language, ways that you can put together words into sentences and, and ways that you can't. Um, so all human varieties have those rules. But because they're used by humans, uh, languages tend to um, become associated with groups of people and groups of people have, for better or for worse, social evaluations attached to them. So there are certain groups of people that we uh, esteem highly, usually people who have money or people who have white skin or people who are from certain countries. And there are unfortunately people that society doesn't esteem as much, like people with certain genders or ethnicities, right? Or who don't have money. And lo and behold, if you think about the sort of evaluations that attach to different dialects, which are the ones that are, are valued? It's the ones spoken by people who are powerful and the ones that people derive are the ones spoken by those who are not powerful or who are socially marginalized in some way. So there are certainly these language attitudes out there that you definitely notice. So everyone thinks British speakers are so posh and classy um, and people have different sorts of opinions about varieties associated with particularly minority groups. But that is, that is not about the language at all. It's not about the sounds of the language or the structure of the language. It's about how people feel about the speakers of that language. Absolutely. And there are a lot of sort of truth and, and myth associated with this subject. And then people somehow, without learning it, or really studying it professionally, not only relying their assumptions, but in a way almost, you know, spread them. You know, for mm-hmm. example, I often hear two things from my parents or people who are older to say, we are way too old for this. We will never be able to learn a language. And I find that to be not true at all because I know Mm -hmm. people who are older purposely learning a new language, sometimes into their 60s, 70s, and 80s. Mm -hmm. So is there such a thing as a an aid or due to some other factors that people are unable to learn as well or as fast as they get older? Or is it sort of on a person-by-person basis? Well, uh, it's complex. So practically speaking, it seems to be easier to learn a new language the earlier it gets its claws into you. People have an easier time. Um, It seems to be more likely in certain ways. That's not to say it's impossible. So there is this idea floating around of the critical period, or some people prefer to say something like sensitive period, which is this idea that there are certain windows of time, usually early in life, where you're particularly receptive to linguistic input and interpreting it and learning it. And this comes from some earlier documented cases, maybe some of which you've heard of, of these, you know, terrible cases where you find a child who, for reasons of usually neglect or abuse, has not been exposed to any linguistic input before, say, age 12. And no surprise, these children tend to have severe language deficits and never really approximate sort of a normal adult-like speech. Now, in those cases, it's hard to tell exactly what the cause of that is. So is it because they didn't get any linguistic input and they missed their sensitive period and now there's no hope? Or is it because of the profound effect of neglect and abuse? Um, Often there's some uh, developmental difficulties uh, that go along with that. And then you can also ask were those pre-existing or those the result of the deprivation and abuse. So it's kind of difficult to pinpoint the causality. But the fact remains that people can still learn other languages and accents as they get older. On the one hand, you may lose a bit in terms of neuroplasticity, but you have other skills as an adult when you're approaching learning a new language. For instance, you have all this great executive function, right, which gives you the discipline to actually sit down and uh, study and bring all sorts of real world knowledge to this task. Uh, You maybe have different types of motivation and motivation seems to be a pretty strong predictor. So if you're If you really need to learn a new language and you're surrounded by that input and people that you can speak it with, you're going to be a lot more successful than if you don't really care that much if you're like taking a class once a week. So motivation is really key. Exposure is really key. Probably there are some interspeaker differences in terms of more general abilities that may distinguish people and make it a little easier, harder to learn. So differences in like working memory capacity or other sort of attentional aspects 
that you know, if, if you have a lot of working memory and very are very focused, maybe you'll have an easier time. But uh, but nothing seems to be impossible. This is one of the um, I love how you how you were explaining this because I feel that. What often stops older people and particularly older Asian people on this is uh, there's a belief system that unfortunately that they have is when they hear a Caucasian person speaking fluent or semi-fluent Chinese, they're shocked and say, you're talented, you're born to do this. The answer has never been, oh, you're interested, you're motivated. How did you get exposed to this? So the way that you shared your knowledge or your experience is that we're all welcome. We can all expose ourselves to this. I love executive function. I don't know. I felt like, yeah, I have that. I have control over this. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the distinction. So I'll move on to there's a myth, not really a myth, an observation of me as a, a foreigner, as a you know second mm-hmm. English, as a, a second language for me that I notice when people complain that English is a difficult and some, somewhat unpredictable language, I finally get it because I feel that it would it was so largely influenced by every language that existed next to it, French, Latin, or German. There's a lot of inconsistencies in English uh, itself. And the fact that there are a lot of English words that are, have two things in them, for example, like the, the cis and the cyst. So there's that English and French influence. There's the aid and the bet. Like, where did that come from? <laughs> um, well, okay, so in terms of a language being difficult to learn, that will depend, that will depend largely on what language experience you already have. So for speakers of some languages, English may be very hard and seem very random and crazy. But for some other speakers who are speakers of languages which have very complex sentence structures and word structures and sound structures, English is a piece of cake. So it's kind of depends on where you're coming from. Another thing to point out is, again, this difference between writing and speaking. So English, the, the written language is pretty crazy in terms of the spelling. And that is because, well, this is the short version, just as uh, English orthography was sort of codified, there was this set of ongoing vowel shifts that occurred, which basically meant that all the sounds that used to be perfectly transparently indicated by the orthography were no longer, like they all kind of shifted around. That's one thing that makes the writing difficult. And of course, when you learn a new language, you learn the writing along with the speaking. So the writing can make it seem a lot more difficult than it actually is. Mm-hmm. In addition to evaluations that people have about particular groups of people, there's a lot of sort of underlying ideologies about language, which it helps to make explicit. So one of these, which people in this country in particular seem to have, is that uh, ideology of sort of one speaker, one language, right? You are, you are supposed to be one thing only, and you have one language that reflects that, which is just crazy because that's not the case. We're all, we all contain multitudes, right? We're all kind of constructing different sort of identities in different contexts, and we shift the way we speak depending on who we are in a particular context, right? So everyone does this. You speak differently in the classroom than you do to your roommates, or to your doctor, or if you're giving a public speech. And we all have this ability as part of being a competent speaker of human languages, being able to shift in this way. And it can it can be a real problem for those who speak varieties that are stigmatized. Um, so going back to abonics or African-American English, as, as linguists term this variety, you know, a lot of the conflict for those speakers comes from the belief that, or a wider belief that, you know, there is a single way that you speak. So that means you have a choice between speaking the standard, which is what employers and schools want you to sound like, or you can speak the way your family and your friends and your neighbors speak. And, you know, those things are important too. (laughs) Like we value being, uh, making lots of money and being seen as educated and competent, but we also value being loved and accepted and being part of a group. So when you frame that sort of thing as a conflict, people run into problems and they may not learn a standard or they may feel alienated from their own communities. But if you can frame it in a way of like, no, you have you have different ways of being in different contexts. Uh, you can speak one way with your family and that's perfectly fine. And you can speak another way in a job interview and that's perfectly fine. And it's all perfectly fine. The more that we can move towards that mindset, the more people will will feel good about their language skills and their place in the world, I think. Mm. 
I love that. That's the purpose of language, after all. It's interesting that we um, kind of categorize language as to have some sort of um, exclusiveness. I actually notice very differently. And I know, like you said, some of my friends will speak differently, whether they're outside versus they're at home. But mm-hmm. when I notice they speak to me as if they're home, because I've heard both accents, you know, it brings this warmth to my heart. Because, sure, yeah. You know, because I know I'm, I'm part of this group and I know that our relationship changes instantly as a result of that. Wow, this is fascinating. You know, the, there's one category of questions I'm trying to structure in a way that I see um, linguistics very different now in today's digital age. Mm-hmm. There is, you know, Siri on our phone, on our computer. I worked in computer science for a while. And, um, mm-hmm. and what are the roles, potentially your roles today, change than, say, when you were in college? I mean, how... How do linguists kind of play in the digital age today? I'm so curious. Well, um, there's certainly linguists who are starting to focus on what they call computer-mediated communication, which is really fascinating, right? Because so typically computer-mediated communication, a lot of it takes place in textual format, but it, it occupies a sort of hybrid region between spoken language, which is often synchronous, right? So people are having a conversation back and forth. It's a uh, kind of assumes a lot of shared context, right? So like if you and I are having a conversation and someone jumps in the middle, they may have no idea what we're talking about because we're using lots of pronouns and referring to him and it and that. And we know what we're talking about because we have that shared context. This is usually different in written language, which is um, typically asynchronous, right? So you write something for somebody else to read later. You can't assume that sort of shared context. So you have a lot more detail in certain respects. Um, You can structure your sentences differently to make them look good on a page as opposed to being something that's easily digestible by the ear, right? And so computer-mediated conversation or communication operates in this intersection between the two. Uh, And it's really fascinating, right? So I have some colleagues who are looking at, who made observations about like, if you're texting someone, you know, the meaning of like how long it takes for someone to respond. And when they respond, is there a period at the end or not? And what does that mean? Right? <laughs> and it's, it's so fascinating because it is this evolving form where the norms are not really settled yet. So people are still trying to figure it out. People are bringing different assumptions and norms to this. There's a lot of generational differences, which when people are not aware of them could be really disturbing, right? If, you're, if your colleague sends you an email or a text and they end it with a period, if you're 20-something, you think that person hates you. <laughs> but no, they just think you end a sentence with a period, right? So there's all these ongoing things that uh, I think linguists can help people be aware of and make explicit and realize that when there are these sort of mismatches, you don't automatically assume the worst or interpret that um, in your own framework, but think about, well, what could this mean to other people? What are what do other cultures, we might say, bring to this? And what, what are the other possibilities besides, oh my God, the person I'm talking to hates me? Maybe it means something else. Mm. Wow. I can see, I'm bridging over to an area that you started to talk about on your LinkedIn mm-hmm. profile, which is um, so much of what you know actually translate really well into other domains, you know, uh, at a glance probably don't relate to linguistics as much, such as project management, which is an mm-hmm. area I've been in for over 10 years. I feel that linguists should really work in corporations, at least run these type of uh, workshops. Mm-hmm. There are miscommunications and misconceptions happening on a daily hourly basis. Sure, sure. Um, emails is a great example. Anything that doesn't, you know, everybody says, oh, we prefer in-person, in-person meetings. But the reality is that that's not always going to happen. You know, mm-hmm. um, people are working more remotely these days. So you started to kind of dive into that of reading an email and not thinking the worst, thinking mm-hmm. about their cultural background, the age difference. Are there any tools and sort of resources that can help people navigate that side of the communication a little bit better? 
Um, I think linguists have a lot to offer here in terms of just generally getting people to question what they think they know about language or any other social phenomenon, really. So often people kind of, as you say, they embrace these myths or kind of come up with conclusions about how language is used or other sort of social phenomena where they'll say like, oh, this group X, they always do Y because of reason Z. And then, of course, they have a feeling about that, right? And often it's like a bad feeling. And what linguistics has taught me is that you really have to question all of those things. So first of all, look at the phenomenon why. So it's an empirical issue, first of all, whether this thing is happening and whether you've characterized it correctly. Let me make this a little more concrete. Uh, So one thing you may have heard is uh, about creaky voice. Some opinions that people have is like, oh, young women, they're always, they use all the creaky voice because they want to sound like Kim Kardashian right? <laughs> or something ridiculous <laughs> right. like that. So you can look at all the, all the pieces of this. You can look at, okay, well, where's the creaky voice happening? So can we look, is it the case that people are just creaking all the time? Well, when you look more closely at that, you find, well, actually it's not the case. So um, English speakers in particular, uh, they tend to creak at the end of turns. So when I'm speaking at the end of an utterance or the end of a turn, um, my voice will go a little creaky. And it's a way of kind of indicating to you as my interlocutor that now I'm done talking, you can talk now. It's also something that occurs when people are saying particular types of things. So when people are expressing um, particular types of attitudes, like maybe um, a, a distance or irony or maybe sarcasm, the creaky voice may come out a little more. So already you can just look at creaky voice, where is it happening? And you can identify like actual patterns, right? So it's not just a random thing. Then you look at who's using it. Is it just young women? Well, young women are uh, pretty salient users of it. Um, Young women tend to be on the vanguard of most cool linguistic changes. Um, But when you look more widely, everybody does this. So particularly that that turn-taking aspect of creaky voice, um, you know, you can look back decades at recordings of male news announcers and they're, you know, everybody creaks at the end of a utterance if they're an English speaker. And of course, men creak as well, and young men are increasingly creaking. So so like we may uh, we may want to look at this and think, hmm, so why are we associating this with young women in particular? And what, what's going on there? Um, and then of course, you can look for the reasons why people are doing it. And uh, you know, one potential hypothesis is that everyone wants to sound like Kim Kardashian, but there are other possibilities like maybe they're, um, doing what everyone else around them does because people tend to talk like the people they talk to. Maybe they're using it as a communicative resource to convey things like the attitude um, or the stance they're taking about the thing they're talking about, or they're using it to indicate that it's the next person's turn. Uh, so there's there's just so much complexity in all of these things. And what linguistics has helped me do is reflect on my own reactions to any sort of social phenomena. Because I'm a human, I have reactions to things. Sometimes they're negative, but I always sort of step back and think, huh, well, is there anything really to that? So is the thing that I think is happening actually happening? Is it really the people that I think it is? And are the reasons, the sort of mind reading I'm doing (laughs) to come up with a reason for why people are doing this, is that really correct? And of course, when you reflect on these things a little bit, you think, okay, well, maybe my first reaction was not correct. And I feel like if if more people took the sort of social science um, perspective on social phenomena, there'd be a lot fewer angry people, many less angry people on the internet, angry people in general, perhaps. <laughs> uh, it would just it would just be very helpful. So that is that is one way that linguistics or social sciences in general, I think, could help the business world, right? Which is um, like every other aspect of of human endeavor about interacting with other people and people who are not exactly the same as you. So can you sort of reflect on what people are doing, what your reaction is, what your reaction is actually about, what that says about you, apart from what it says about the person you're reacting about, um, and then how do you deal with that? You strike me as a very curious person. And I'm wondering, you know, besides everything you're doing now at work, what are some Mm -hmm. of the other things that are, that kind of interest you outside of linguistics and? Oh, sure. Yeah. 
So there's a continuum, which is like kind of more academic to less academic. So outside of linguistics, but just thinking about higher education more generally, I'm very interested in graduate students and the process of becoming a scholar. So this is something that, um, you know, as someone who reflects a lot on my own trajectory through life, I sort of have thought a lot about my own path from starting off as a, you know, we first year grad student who didn't really know anything to becoming a professor, right? That was a a process. It didn't occur overnight. Um, And now that I'm someone who advises grad students, I'm really fascinated by that process of when people come in as a first year student, mostly taking classes, mostly taking direction from other people, how do they get from that point to they're finishing their dissertation and they are an expert in a field and the expert in a particular thing that they wrote their dissertation about? And how do how do their sort of social practices and linguistic practices as part of that reflect that change. So this is something that I'm actually hoping to start some research on um, following grad students longitudinally from when they start to when they finish. You know, how do people sort of make that transition from student to scholar, right, to kind of amateur to professional in the academic context? So that's one thing I'm really fascinated by. And to that end, I try to incorporate a lot of sort of mentoring and professional development types of things into my classes, into my grad student interactions. So that's a more academic sort of interest. I think that's fascinating. And surprisingly, I've I've spoken with several guests in many different fields, myself mm-hmm. included, having worked in advertising and marketing. I'm fascinated by when someone goes through the internship as a marketer to mm-hmm. an associate, to senior associate, and, and how lost and how frustrating that process was and how scary it was at the beginning. You know, frankly, there were a lot of roles in my in my field, such as project management, production, they were simply not taught in school at all. Mm-hmm. I hear the same thing from a doctors at a Mass General Hospital of training students, um, residents who graduate at the age of 29, 30 and literally never really had a real job. And this is the mm-hmm. first one. And they might have to stand somewhere and telling someone that they have cancer. Like, how do you facilitate that process? So I'm really curious about this project. Has it started yet? I mean, are you No, no, it hasn't started yet. It's the sort of thing that I'm writing up the IRB. So the, whenever you do any sort of research with human subjects in an academic context, you need a institutional review board permission, Oh wow! which is good because, you know, earlier in the 20th century, you had people injecting others with cancer cells or zapping them with shocks because they could. And right, there was just all kinds of crazy things going on. So it's good that we have to get some sort of institutional permission to do these things. But it is kind of a process where you have to, you know, articulate what exactly you're going to do and, and how you're going to do it and how you're going to safeguard the rights of the of the person you're interviewing or, or experimenting on. So this is early phases. And it is the sort of thing that also I'm looking to start kind of after my next career milestone, which is going up for tenure, which happens in the next year. So that's uh, something I want to get past and sort of finish up a lot of old projects before I move on to something new. But it's this idea that's been growing in the back of my head, which I've been implementing in informal ways in my courses and my interactions with grad students. But I'm going to uh, make it part of my research as well. Yeah, I think that will absolutely interest a lot of my listeners and maybe as a follow-up. Yeah. Um, So what about some of the other activities, sort of interests that you have? Um, sure. Um, I do practice yoga and meditation and enjoy reading a lot about these sort of wellness practices um, in, in a very sort of serious empirical way. So there's a lot of really good research, for instance, on the benefits of meditation. Um, John kabat is associated with a lot of this sort of work. I mean, again, it, it kind of comes back to my academic interest in reflecting on the reactions you have to things, right? So this is this is a very meditative sort of notion, right? The idea that you have a thought, but you don't necessarily run with it. You kind of step back from it and observe it. Don't let it necessarily drive your action, right? Um, this is uh, fantastic because I feel that not to relay everything back to linguistics, but there mm-hmm. is that common thread and theme, mm-hmm. you know, meditation is something that I kind of brought upon myself roughly about 10 years ago. Um, what are mm-hmm. some of the apps or like you're using for meditation or methods that you're considering? Um, well, I like the Headspace app, which has gotten a lot of 
airplay. And so I think they're pretty well known at this point. I especially like it because um, it keeps track of your streaks. So how many days in a row you've meditated, which in a sense is kind of like very anti-meditative, like I'm, I'm competitively meditating <laughs> with myself, but that's kind of nice. And, and it does help to build that habit. I mean, so much of so much of succeeding, I feel I'm learning as I get older, is just like building the right habits and putting things on autopilot and making sure the things on autopilot are good things to do. So like if you wake up every morning and have a glass of water and that just becomes the thing you do, that's really good. Yeah. You don't, you don't think about it. You don't think about, I must, I must hydrate in the morning, but you just do it. And, um, so having that sort of like very minor accountability of having a streak being calculated in an app can really help build that habit. And now I have a morning meditation every morning and it's a really good habit to have. One way in which these sort of activities contrast with my day job, as it were, of being a linguist is that they're very, either very physical or about concrete things and or getting out of my head, uh, which I think is really crucial. So if you're in the um, the knowledge work business, which I guess like everyone is nowadays, <laughs> or many of us, right, that requires a c- certain types of skills. And it, it can be very easy to go a little overboard and get caught up in the knowledge part and caught up in your head, which you know, it's very rewarding and it's what we're good at, but um, there's also ways in which it is less than satisfying. So when you're creating knowledge, you're never really clear on what you've done, right? It's not the same as having a thing that you've made. Um, And particularly in academia, when you're working on a research project, it can be a really long time before you have a tangible thing you can hold, like in the form of a publication. And something like cooking a meal, it's just so immediately gratifying. You buy the food, you create something good out of the food from a recipe or just like your own skills. At the end of it, you have a meal that you made and then you eat it and you're full. And it's all very concrete and uh, the the accomplishments are clear and uh, you do it with your hands (laughs) and it's very satisfying. So having those sorts of activities, whether it's making a meal with your hands or spending a certain amount of time doing yoga positions or running, which is something else that I do. Um, Being able to get out of your head and into the physical world is really conducive to sanity. I think it's crucial. I've come across so many PhDs and researchers in Boston who are just living miserable lives. I almost hate to say that because they're so incredibly smart and, and good at what they do, but they are kind of really stuck in their heads. And I know it takes years to finish a, a research paper. Mm-hmm. And um, many of them don't necessarily like to work out or do something with their hands. And I can see how frustrating that would be. Yeah, I, I love the advice. I think that's this is critical um, for, for anybody. Most of us are working in front of a desk, uh, you know, mm-hmm. not going to a classroom, even just literally right here for right. eight, 10 hours. Eight, right. So, oh, this is so cool. I'm so glad. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much. Um, All right. Thank you, Faye. Yeah. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, it's Faye. I am back for a few words at the end of the show. I hope you enjoy what you heard. You can visit us online at faceworld.com or social channels such as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, also under FaceWorld to keep things simple. I personally review and respond to all the messages. Love to hear from you. Thank you and lots of hugs. See you next week.